I was the prototypical super shy nerd. So, you know, I was very bookwormy. I had a hard time even talking in class. And at some point I realized that this was going to be career limiting <laughs> if I couldn't, you know, go up and talk to people. I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. We're launching 10 more weeks of interviews with venture capital and entrepreneurs, and we kick off with Trey Vassallo of Defy Ventures. Trey and I are both from the Midwest, and we both got our start with the Apple computer. Tell me the memories you have of the Apple II Plus. Oh, my goodness. I, and I think this is not unique to my story, too, but I think there's a whole host of folks from my generation where, you know, it was the first time they were starting to put computers into schools. And so it was a really big change. And I remember being in, I think it was like fourth grade. And, you know, I uh, was part of this program called GATE, where they would pull you out of your normal classes and allow you to sort of explore other topics and things. And the thing that we got access to were these amazing, shiny new Apple twos. And I have vivid, vivid memories of basically learning all the commands to create graphics on a screen. And, you know, and it just created this massive spark of, wow, this is a super powerful tool. Um, I also remember getting killed by dysentery, you know, on the <laughs> Oregon Trail game <laughs> over and over again as well. So, we you know, the, 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 the programming was, was pretty minimal at the time. But yeah, it did, it did really create a spark for me that made me realize that, you know, this programming thing and being able to use logic to, um, you know, to solve problems, uh, it was pretty exciting. So by the time I was ready to graduate and go off to college, I knew I wanted to be a problem solver. And to me, that translated to an engineer. It is amazing, those little things. And mine was an Apple II that my parents bought me. Uh, I was fortunate enough at about the same age or same time, I would have been a little older, uh, but um, which got me where I am today. I just, it was programming, you know, line yep. 10 yep. for I equals one to five. <laughs> yeah, line confidence 20. building. It's, it's amazing. 
It's fabulous. So, and this is in rural Minnesota. This is in uh, Fairmont, Minnesota, <laughs> That's right? That's right. A town that I'm sure no one listening to this has heard of. So um, I looked it up on yeah. the map. It's <laughs> practically Iowa. It is. I, I grew up three miles from Iowa. Yeah. <laughs> now, you know, there's a huge rivalry between Iowa and Minnesota. I sure do. Yes, of course. <laughs> you can't grow up in that area and not know. Right. That. Now, do you know why the wind blows north out of Iowa into Minnesota? <laughs> so the Iowans don't have to smell the Minnesotans? No, yeah. because Minnesota sucks. Uh... <laughs> Trey is a founder of Defy Ventures. She came to it after a long stint at Kleiner Perkins investing in Nest and other consumer tech hits. She says her first question to every entrepreneur who wants to build a company is, why now? I realize it's been a few years since you launched Defy, but you ask entrepreneurs this, so I'm going to ask you, why now? <laughs> why now? Yeah, great question. Uh, so for me, yeah, I left Kleiner Perkins in 2014. I had spent 11 years there, um, you know, building up, my sort of skill set and how to be an investor. It was an amazing learning experience. And I got to, to work with some incredible entrepreneurs through Nest and Dropcam and Opower. And so I, uh, when I left Kleiner, I knew that I in some way wanted to continue investing um, because I really enjoyed it and um, love, love the ability to work with some of the best entrepreneurs on the planet. And the question was, what's the right construct? What's the organization? What's the focus? How is it going to be, um, you know, most impactful and most inspiring for what I want to do next? And, um, and the thing that I found, I'd say most frustrating during kind of my final years at Kleiner was, uh, just the size of the organization. So, you know, some people are really skilled at being in large organizations. I think what I learned about myself is that I'm, I function way better in smaller teams, <laughs> smaller organizations. And so, you know, there's something about being in a small, fast moving team, uh, being an entrepreneur that I love. And so, uh, you know, it wasn't obvious when I was leaving Kleiner that, oh, I'm going to start a new fund that actually wasn't the top thing on my mind. Uh, but as I started diving in and understanding, you know, how, how am I most valuable, valuable to entrepreneurs without the Kleiner brand and without the Kleiner pocketbook, I realized it's this early stage, um, the coaching and the empathy and the product help. And it's, it's everything that an early stage investor does and works with an entrepreneur to help them grow from a seed back company into something that's going to scale and get bigger. And, um, and so I really found my passion for, for doing the targeted early stage investing and doing that in the context of a, a small venture team. And, uh, you know, I'd say that the other, I think insight is that, you know, venture investing, the teamwork dynamic of an investing team, it's hard to scale to a, you know, a team of 10 investors and, um, and make really tough venture decisions. Cause part of the problem is everyone around the table, um, has a point of view and really good reasons why the company that you're debating isn't going to work. Um, and so at some point, actually, the more people you have around the table, it can actually be harder to get really controversial, hard investment decisions through. And, and it's funny because both, both my partner, Neil and I have you know thought back through our histories and experiences of doing investing. And oftentimes it is the most controversial investments that have become the most wildly successful companies. There's a reason it's controversial. It's not 
not obvious. It's, it's a big, daring, audacious bet. Um, and, you know, and then conversely, some of the most, you know, well-loved opportunities ended up not working out so well. You know, that's what makes this job so hard is that it's not always obvious and things take wild twists and turns. We kept coming back to this theme of how we liked being sort of counter thesis or orthogonal to where everyone else is going. And, and that also embodies the, the kind of the root of what it means to be an entrepreneur. You have to swim against the tide. You are, you know, doing something that everyone else thinks is impossible. And, and so in that very nature, you are defying, you know, kind of the status quo. And so we really fell in love with the term defy and, uh, and, uh, yeah. And I think everyone seems to really like it. It's certainly memorable. You've said tough decisions and yeah. controversial decisions. So yeah. can you tell me about some of them? Uh, well, so I mean, a great example is uh, like the nest conversation, right? So that was one I certainly had a front row seat to, um, you know, Tony Fidel and Matt Rogers, an, an incredible team, um, you know, that basically created the iPhone, the iPod, iPhone at Apple, um, you know, walked in our door with an audacious plan to build a uh, smart thermostat of all, things. of all things, right? You know, really super exciting thermostat. And you're like, wait a second. But the, the interesting thing was I had actually had been focusing on how to drive consumer efficiency. And so I had been spending a lot of time thinking about, wow, well, the, there's, there's something really special about the thermostat. And the problem is you can't, you know, utilities can't push a thermostat on people. No one, no one wants their monopolistic utility to do that. So if, if you're ever going to do something impactful with a thermostat, it has to be in a hugely consumerized branded way. And I, and that's where I was in my thinking and I was stuck because how do you find that team? Right. And then, you know, magically the timing couldn't have been more interesting. You know, they walk in the door. And so for me and for, for Randy, who had been thinking about this with me, you know, it was so obvious, but for, for bringing around the rest of the people around the partnership, it, it wasn't as obvious because, yeah. Just so I understand what you're saying, yeah. you were thinking about thermostats before Tony walks in the door? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you're kidding. No, no. It's So I was focused on efficiency and how you could drive uh, efficiency in uh, kind of the energy sectors. And, um, and so I, you know, in that time period also invested in Opower, um, which was more of a software platform for utilities. And so, you know, when you spend time thinking about, okay, how do you help drive consumer efficiency? There are not too many places to go. <laughs> the, the, I was waiting for somebody to come in and pitch me a thermostat and then somebody did story is one of the least likely stories I think I've ever heard it, in Silicon it is Valley. It's kind of crazy. And in fact, we had been looking at can we even kickstart a company in China and just kind of get something made over there for cheap uh, or buy something and then hack software on top of it? And thank goodness Tony and Matt came through the door because that would have been a terrible, <laughs> a terrible product and experience relative to what they built. I think if you told somebody, you know, there was going to be a $200 thermostat uh, and people would buy it, lots of people would buy it, they would have thought you were crazy. But it's that... When you turn the wheel, it is so excellent. It is, it is, the design is so wonderful 
that it just sort of speaks to you, and it's a thermostat. Yeah. You were an engineer at IDO. I was, Um, What is it about the Nest thermostat or the OWL camera or the things that you've invested in that really speak to you? Well, I'd say once a product person and a product thinker, kind of always a product thinker, and the thing that I learned at IDEO was putting the customer first and always making sure that no matter kind of what you're building and designing, that every single decision is happening in the context of how the user is using the product. And so it's really focused on creating that delight, the product delight. And that is something that, you know, is hard to, you you don't, I don't think you can learn that in a textbook. You sort of, you learn by doing, and there are a few companies that get it really well. And Apple clearly has mastered the, the creating consumer delight. And Tony and Matt had that vision for creating consumer delight. And that means, you know, obsessing about details in absolutely everything. It's not just how something looks, but it's, you know, how the unboxing process goes. It's, you know, every little detail in the flow of the software and the process to buy the product. It's, there's no thing that's left kind of untouched at that point. And, and not all entrepreneurs think that way. And so I'd say, you know, the thing that I took away from my, um, my experience at IDEO is that, you know, building a product is, it you know, requires that obsession on the, on the customer, but it also requires a massive amount of iteration. And I think a lot of people, uh, you know, who aren't in the startup world or who haven't built products before sort of think you kind of have a direction and you go, but the reality is you are, you think you're building the right thing and then you are constantly testing and tweaking and iterating. And you want to do as much of that as early as possible uh, <laughs> to figure all that stuff out up front before you get too far along. And, you know, and, you know, I, so I, I learned how to do that at a product level at IDEO. And then um, I went to business school and I co-founded Good Technology and I got to do that at a company level. And now I get to do that, you know, at a, at a multi-company level by, you know, at least helping um, and working with entrepreneurs who are going through that process daily. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. One of the things that I think is also beautifully designed is the Eero. This is the uh, internet uh, uh, with the little devices throughout your house. Uh, You were an early investor in Eero and then uh, sold to Amazon. How did that come about? Does Amazon just call you on the phone and say, (laughs) or Eero on the phone and say, hey, we think we'd like to buy it. Yeah, well, I was a seed investor in Eero. So it was actually the first investment that I did after I left Kleiner. Oh, so this turned out pretty well. Um, And well, so it was funny because, uh, you know, I had done Dropcam and Nest at Kleiner. And so obviously, 
obviously, you know, I'd spent a fair amount of time thinking about technology in the home and the limiting issue for Nest and Dropcam working well was you had to have reliable and, and you know, relatively fast home, home Wi-Fi. And it turns out the solutions that are out there are you know, not all that great. And so when I met Nick Weaver and he pitched, you know, this idea of a sort of self-healing, super simple Wi-Fi with a software interface, you know, where it's actually a, a software front end that, it, you know, is super easy to use and work with. Um, it just made complete sense. So, you know, so that was part of what got me excited about, you know, investing in Nick and, and, um, you know, and then, you know, I, was, I got to be an early beta tester as well, which I always love. You know, I think this is, goes back to my IDEO days, right? So really, getting in there and understanding the product. Um, but your question about Amazon is ultimately, you know, a lot of these, these hardware products, um, you know, Nest ended up at Google and Eero ended up at Amazon, you know, the reach that these big companies have in how, uh, you know, in their customer base and, and the technology they're building on top of all of these things is massive. So, you know, for, uh, Eero to go to Amazon, um, it, you know, and Amazon also acquired ring and, and, you know, and has all of these Alexas and spots in your home now, they are heading clearly in a dominant direction around basically making your home, you know, a, a computing platform, which is pretty interesting. The thing I think that's missing in the home, and perhaps Opower is part of supplying this, is the control panel somewhere in the hallway that just tells me about how what my home is doing, mm-hmm. uh, how much my, how much power is coming in from the solar cells. How much power's going out from everything else? I wouldn't mind if it tied into the water system as well. This is how much water's been used today. An overall sort of Star Trek heartbeat of my house. Uh, can somebody build that? <laughs> well, there are a lot of people trying. I, I can't tell you how many business plans I get from folks that are trying to be the aggregator right. of all the services in the home. And my question to them usually is, are you solving a problem with the aggregation? No, yeah, there's just it, curiosity there. Yeah, I don't know that it's yeah. a... And so I actually, I don't know that that's the holy grail of the smart home. I, I totally understand why it's an interesting thing to think about. What I want as a, as a consumer, and I'm a data point of one, is I just want stuff to work seamlessly in my home. And if it can be somewhat automated, so it predicts and knows and does what I want without me even having to do something awesome. And so ultimately kind of my judge when I'm looking at a product is it has to make life easier, hopefully add a little bit of delight into the process. And, and not all technology products make life easier. They might actually make things more complicated. And I, and my issue with dashboards to your point is that unless they're tied into something that creates automation, you know, it's, it, it may be nice to get the data periodically, but unless you're turning that into action somehow or behavioral change somehow, um, you know, I think they can sound great and people love access to data, but really turning that into an ongoing consumer, um, you know, product or benefit, I think is a challenge. You've had great exits with Nest and with Eero. Uh, you're an investor in OwlCam, which is a, a dash yeah. cam in the car. Very yeah. smart dash cam. Smart dash cam. Yes, smart <laughs> dash cam. It's the yes. nest of dash it cams. It is, yes. At what point do you 
start to think about an exit or do you even consider that? Is this some, at what point do you think we're going to build this into the largest dash cam company in the world or we kind of have our eye on Ford to sell it to Ford? Yeah, I, I, boy, do I wish the world worked like that. I, yeah, we want to sell it to this company. Yeah, no, it does not work that way. I think the goal that we always have is, you know, we want to build the most value. And sometimes the value comes earlier than you might expect when a strategic or potential acquirer comes by and says, yes, we see the value of combining our distribution or our, you know, cars with your product. And we think that one in one is going to make five. (laughs) And, and that's fantastic. But I I think if you build with the intention of being acquired quickly, um, you know, that is, that is not a good, good place to be because, you know, as we all know, the likelihood of, of the stars lining up for those things to happen is very, very low. And so in the case of Alcam, uh, you know, this is another story of, of backing an amazing group of, of folks. So Andy Hodge, the CEO at Owl, I actually worked with at IDEO uh, many, many years ago. (laughs) So I've known him for a long, long time. Uh, He went off um, and actually was working with Tony Fidel on iPod and Apple and, or uh, sorry, uh, iPhone and and iPad. And so he's one of the, the select crew of folks who've really, you know, gone through that transformative consumer product process of developing these great products. I recruited him to Dropcam um, a few years ago, which was a company that uh, you know basically allowed you to put cameras in your home and and have peace of mind and, and watch what was going on and record things if anything kind of goofy happened. And so Andy came and helped us with Dropcam and was inspired by wow, you know, when you put software on a smart camera, you can do some really interesting things. And the insight around Owl was. When you look at the what happens um, from a sort of damage and, and liability and casualty, and if you just look at the sheer dollar amount of auto versus home, it's it's like ten times higher in auto than home. Yet no one, you know, home security systems are all over the place, but no one has them for cars, and and partly because there just hasn't been the technology to be able to do anything proactively as, as a consumer. And, um, now that technology is where it is and you can put a super powerful, uh, cell phone like product in your car that is smart enough to record everything it sees, know what's important, send, you know, certain things to the cloud, alert you on other things. Uh, there's a lot of, um, intelligence going on in the product and, um, and a lot of data, uh, that it, that is handling that you couldn't have managed even a few years ago. And, and you frankly need the LTE networks and the 5g networks and all that to make the product work well, but they're smart data. Dashcam now um, has over 150 million miles of data and, and great videos. And great videos. I mean, these guys get crazy videos every single day now of amazing, you know, wacky road rage incidents, uh, you know, really funny, you know, cute carry, car karaoke videos, that kind of thing. And most importantly, though, it puts power back in consumers' hands, uh, you know, whether it's um, you know, your car getting bumped in a parking lot, you weren't in it, but it records it and you know what happened and you at least have peace of mind or you get into an accident and you have at the point of the police officers talking to you, an app 
absolute recording of exactly what happened. So you can determine fault at the point of the accident. So, so that's kind of where Alcam is at. And now they're really extending into fleets at this point. So Owl and Eero and Nest are easy to understand stories. It's mm-hmm. very quickly apparent to me why I desire yep. these devices. Uh, engineers oftentimes have trouble telling stories. Uh, that's just <laughs> yes. part of the beast, right? Yes. You yourself said you came out of your shell at Stanford. Yeah, yeah. This was something I recognized that I, you know, I graduated with a master's, I had a bachelor's and a master's in mechanical engineering, but with really a focus on robotics. And I was... I was the prototypical super shy nerd. So, you know, I was very bookwormy. I had a hard time even talking in class. So raising my hand to answer a question was like mortifying to me. And at some point I realized that this was going to be career limiting (laughs) if I couldn't, you know, go up and talk to people, if I couldn't talk out in a group. And so I forced myself when I went back for business school, I said, all right, Trey, you're going to really push on your, your kind of MO this time. And you're not going to just try to, you know, get the best grades, grades you're not here for grades. You're here for personal growth. And what matters is coming out of your shell and learning how to network and, and being comfortable with that. And so I took improv, which was the first step in learning how to intentionally act goofy and then being okay with it. And that was kind of mind blowing for me. And it's like, Oh, I survived this. It felt okay. Actually, it was kind of fun. Um, and then just forcing myself to, you know, take some risks and, you know, and I've talked about, uh, how I met John Doerr as one of the most amazing sort of examples of me taking a risk like this, kind of putting myself out there. I saw John before class at a, you know, grabbing a newspaper and, you know, I'm thinking to myself, oh, he doesn't want to be bothered by a student. And I'm like, OK, but this is exactly the thing I need to force myself to do. And so I walked up to him and I introduced myself. And um, and, you know, at the time I had just gotten done engineering the Palm 5, which was a pretty amazing and iconic product of the time. It dates myself, though. It's now in the Computer History Museum. But um But, you know, I basically just leaned into, hey, I I just got done launching this incredible product and, you know, wanted to ask you if there are any companies that you know of or or folks who are working on companies in this area where they want to connect to these products to the internet. It was, it was kind of an obvious thing that was starting to happen, but hadn't really happened yet. And, uh, and that turned into him connecting me with my co-founders of good technology and then ultimately being able to become an entrepreneur all because I, you know, basically was able to rally the courage to put myself out there and go ask someone who, you know, is just, larger than life and an incredible person, you know, for advice. I used to think of venture capital as money that you use to buy desks and rent an office and buy some plants for the front (laughs) office and, you know, maybe build an assembly line. Right, right. I'm beginning to understand venture capital is for mitigating risks. Mm -hmm. Um, Getting rid of the things that are going to bring your company down. Is that a pretty good understanding of it? Yeah, I mean, in fact... uh, working at Kleiner, John used to say, one of my mentors, John Dora, always used to say, you know, it's about the money you're taking in in this round is all about 
going towards the, you know, the top three risks that are going to kill this business that you want to figure out how to, how to get off your plate. And so a good CEO not only is inspiring the team and, and ha, you know, is touting this incredible vision of what they're building, but they're simultaneously keeping laser focus on the top set of risks that are going to kill the business or are going to hurt the business and absolutely focusing on how to, um, you know, mitigate those risks or work around and, and ultimately uh, put those risks uh, to the side. So, um, yeah, it is all about figuring out how to, um, you know, push through these things that just aren't working. Vasello is also noted for her involvement in a report called Elephant in the Valley, as well as testifying in Ellen Powell's lawsuit against Kleiner Perkins. We'll start with the elephant in the valley. A study of 200 women with at least 10 years' experience found 84% of women had been criticized as being too aggressive. 82% experienced clients or colleagues addressing their male peers when they should have been addressing the women. And 60% received unwanted sexual advances. You've had to deal with some of this yourself. <laughs> I think anyone, uh, yes, yeah. Clearly the data shows that it's more uh, systemic than I think any of us understood or believed. So, um, yeah, and, you know, I was... Uh, uh, part of the Kleiner Perkins trial and, you know, my process of sharing my story, um, of, of having to deal with some harassment issues basically caused this incredible outpouring of folks who reached out and said, thank you for sharing your story. The same thing happened to me. And it was this interesting catalyst for me where I was like, Oh, I didn't do something wrong. Um, it, cause inevitably when this stuff is happening to you, no matter how you handle it, you're like, what am I doing to cause this? And so at some level, there was this relief that, oh, I'm not, the, I'm not alone. I'm not the only person who's had to deal with this. But then there was this shock that, oh my goodness, this is like an epically large proportion of people and, and friends. It felt like over half who've had to deal with a lot of stuff. And so that inspired myself and Michelle Madansky and a handful of women were like, we can get this information. Let's I'm curious now, let's go figure this out and at least get the information out there in a way that's not um, that, that can stimulate conversation um, and help move the conversation forward as opposed to just try to have people point fingers. And so, uh, yes, we did the survey. We got a bunch of amazing responses and, and it helped catalyze a whole host of interesting conversations. And this was a few years ago now because this was right after uh, the trial, which I can't remember. I think that was 2014 or 2015. And I think the numbers yeah. came out in 2016. Yeah, that's right. They? Yeah. Do you think because the Me Too movement has since happened mm -hmm. that if you went and ran these numbers again, they would go down because the world is a better place or go up <laughs> because the world is a better, it does a better job of reporting this? Yeah, I think that... You know, this was a, a not an academic survey and, and it was not, you know, hugely. It was we surveyed a bunch of folks for their, uh, you know, for their emotional responses to these questions. And so I think there was no reason to withhold answers here. So I don't think that people were holding back. So I do think that was fairly representative at the time. And I like to think that, 
given all of the conversation today that these trends can only get better. <laughs> it's hard to get much worse. And, um, you know, and people are not talking about it. And so I think that's the big difference is that if you go back to 2016 and, and earlier, people just weren't talking about these topics publicly. I do sometimes when I'm doing interviews struggle with the conversations about gender equality and things um, because I find myself asking women about them and not men. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Now you're the one who authored the study. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, so totally. there's, there's, here I'm going to be sense. defensive here yeah, yeah. in, in some totally. point. Um, you know, I talked to this person about this investment. I talked to Trey about, uh, Eero and Owl and oh, by the way, let's talk about gender diversity. Right. Um, does it ever, which would you have preferred? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think the important thing is, you know, that it's not just that. Right. So I think the important thing for me is first and foremost, I want to build, a successful career. I want to work with amazing entrepreneurs. I want to help lots of people. And if part of that platform includes helping bring up, you know, uh, some topics that might be hard and complex to, to, to have a conversation about, I'm okay with that as long as that's a subset and not the lead on everything that I do. Trey Vassallo, co-founder of Defy Ventures. Now, before we go, I want to go back to something Trey had said earlier. So for me and for for Randy, who had been thinking about this with me, you know, it was so obvious. But for for bringing around the rest of the people around the partnership, it it wasn't as obvious because, yeah. Just so I understand what you're saying, you were thinking about thermostats before Tony walks in the door? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) You're kidding. No. Randy is Randy Komisar, and we've talked to Randy on this podcast. Just check the previous interviews for that. And Tony, as Trey mentions, is Tony Fidel, the creator of the iPod and, of course, the Nest thermostat. I look around and I just see so many products that once you connect them and once you add uh, smarts to them, you're going to see innovation all around. You can find a talk with Tony on my television project, Press Here. Archives of that interview are available at PressHereTV.com. Next week on the podcast, you have 40 seconds. Hold on. Doors are closing. And okay, Matt, what is corporate venture capital? We join Salesforce Ventures' Matt Garrett in an elevator for a real-life elevator pitch. Sandhill Road is written and produced by me, Scott McGrew, produced and edited by Sean Myers, and executive produced by Sarah Bueno and Stephanie Adruni.